All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. This is episode six, and uh, we're, we're happy that everyone's attending and seeing so many familiar people reattending. It must mean you like uh, what we're doing or you like getting CEUs or the combination of the two. Uh, so I will let Joe introduce our uh, guest panelist, I guess. I guess that's what they're technically called. Guest speaker. Before, uh... before let's do some. Uh, housework here. Let me just go over some things. To get your BCBA CEUs, if you want them, you're going to need to email me at jblhotpar at aol.com. Joe's putting that in the uh, text message. You're going to need to put your name, your BCBA number, and then a keyword in the opening and a keyword in the closing. And I will give it in the opening and closing in a second. And I should get that back, let's say, by Monday of next week. Monday of next week. So you'll get it within a week. And the opening word, because it's something I'm craving right now, ice cream. Ice cream is the opening word of today. So, Joe, I will let you uh, take over the introductions. I don't think I missed anything, right? Uh, no, I mean, I'll, I'll cover some of the logistics, um, but I also want to welcome now Dr. Malika Pritchett. Does it feel weird hearing that yet? It's a little strange. A little strange? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's getting, it's getting a little bit more familiar, but I'm not sure if it'll ever get 100% familiar. Well, I'm just going to say it nonstop in here just to flood. <laughs> um, but no, I'm very excited that you're here. Um, I just want to give a little bit of an introduction. Uh, I, we met when I came down to UNT, uh, so we have a very similar lineage in uh, our master's degree, at least in lots of the people that we work with while we were at UNT. Uh, and I'm very happy that you and my wife are such good friends because I think it, it resulted in you and I also becoming good friends, and I'd consider you family at this point. Uh, I hope that's not going too far. <laughs> but, uh, and you, you stayed at UNT to get your PhD. Uh, I, and I think the, the title of your dissertation, and correct me if I'm wrong, was uh, something like Coloniality and the Science of ABA. Perfect. Yes. Got it. <laughs> yes. Um, which made me think, um, and I've thought for a long time, that it would be wonderful for us to be able to have this, this discussion in this format, and you are the perfect person to come here uh, and, and really, uh, I think, help guide and educate lots of the people that come to these. Um, so uh, uh, the title of this chapter is Coloniality, Diversity, and Social Justice in ABA. Uh, and we're going to be hitting on a lot of, I think, heavy things that are currently going on in the world, or at least a light is, is being shown a little bit brighter on some of the things that have been going on uh, in the world. And with that, I want to make sure that everyone feels comfortable asking questions. There's lots of different ways that you can do it in this format, uh, and you can do it anonymously. So if you feel like your question, and no questions are dumb, like this is an opportunity to learn. Um, so the only dumb question is not asking the question that you actually have. 
Um, so if you don't feel comfortable doing it and uh, with, with your name attached to it, you can ask it anonymously in the Q&A option. You can also send questions just to the panelists. So you can, in the chat function, you can send it just to us and we'll make sure that we'll try to work that in. But the general format that we're going to take is similar to the rest of them. We're going to just chat. We're going to have a nice discussion. Uh, it's supposed to model some of the bar talks that you would have at a conference that we're all just craving uh, because, you know, we don't have that right now. We don't have that in-person contact at conferences. So um, if you have questions that we can fit in during that conversation, we'll do that. If not, we'll make sure that there's time at the end that we'll try to address every question that you have. Um, so with, with that, Malika, do you have anything you'd like to add? No, that was perfect. All right. That was very, very good. Yeah. Great. Great. <laughs> um, well, I think one thing that might be nice for everyone is, uh, that might not be familiar with the term is coloniality or, or, uh, uh, and it's not a new term within our field. Uh, you know, Fawcett talked about it back in 91. Uh, as well as others, uh, but I think it might be nice to, for us to kind of talk about what that means and how it relates to uh, applied behavior analysis. And I think Malika, you're the perfect one to kind of kick that conversation off if you're comfortable with it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, thank you guys for having me. It does feel like um, the longer and longer you kind of go on the journey in this field that your friends become family and we're used to seeing each other and we, we have a rhythm and so, uh, this rhythm being disrupted and us not seeing each other at the bar talking about these topics is very, very um, strange, <laughs> to say the least. So it's very comforting that I get to, to see people that I like and um, to talk about things that we're all interested in. We've had these conversations before, so this is picking up where we've left off. But um, yeah, Fawcett in 91 uh, talked about avoiding colonial relationships with, with participants. Um, and he specifically said research participants, not research subjects. Um, and he talked about avoiding colonial relationships because <clears throat> what it creates is it creates a, a dichotomy between um, the researcher as the, the, the dominant, as Fawcett explained, dominant knowledge seeking authority, and then the uh, participant or the research subject um, as the silent subservient target of research. And um, when, when you kind of, when you conceptualize a research relationship in that dynamic, then, and, and with the word colonial in particular being used, um, and Fawcett, I think, I haven't had the opportunity to speak with him, but I think using that language very poignantly and specifically um, gets us, or got me um, and, and my advisor, Dr. Alai, excited about what is, what is this use of the word colonial in this, in this sense? Um, and in order for, for us to really have a conversation about colonial relationships, we have to double back and figure out what colonial actually means and what colonialism means. Um, and so we have to, um, you know, dig out our, our history books or our history um, repertoire and remember what colonialism is and what's it's meant, what it's meant in the entire sense of our world. And so by definition, colonialism is literally um, foreign invaders going into a land and uh, engaging in a relationship that is typically a relationship uh, that is coercive, um, full of negative reinforcement and punishment of the indigenous persons of that, of that land 
And um, what gets uh, the product of that is typically taking things like land, uh, using people as resources such as labor, um, or even extracting things like artwork or, or just a knowledge base from, the, from these lands. Um, so we've seen colonialism all over our world. We've seen it in India, we've seen it in many, many parts of Africa. This is not new for, for us to understand Europe in, engaging in these, these um, acts of, of overtaking lands and um, commodifying the resources of that land. So colonialism is, is in, the, in the truest sense uh, from the historical perspective. What coloniality is, is coloniality of power is um, what post-colonial theorists say is the remnants of colonialism, the products of colonialism. And so the way colonial, coloniality of power is reflected is in power relations that exist in these post-colonial societies. And you see these power relations that are um, hierarchical, stratified, and dichotomous in a, in a lot of ways. Um, and so when Fawcett is talking about these colonial relationships, he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about a relationship in, in which one person has more power over the other. Um, but the way that we have to understand it and talk about it as we move on in behavior analysis is we have to talk about and define what does power mean and what are the contingencies under which these uh, dichotomous power relations are established and perpetuated and what is it about our practices as a science um, that, that uh, perpetuates these imbalances or not. Um, um, so, so Fawcett offered uh, a lot of suggestions. The colonial relationships is a, is a piece of, of how he um, suggested the research relationship and be engaged. Um, but, uh, and, and his, his um, safeguard for those, those types of relationships was engagement and empowerment of participants um, in the research um, relationship, and then ensuring that there's a collaboration with all research engagements. So does, does that make sense? Because that's a lot already. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense to me, uh, but I'm, I'm familiar with the article and I, I, I posted the reference uh, along with a link to it uh, in, in the chat box in case anybody would like to get access to it uh, if they haven't contacted it. Uh, and if you, and if it, I think at this point, if anything is unclear, people can ask questions, they have that format. So um, I, definitely clear to me. And one thing that it made me think of is, uh, and I contact this a lot with working with master students. Everybody wants to do a review of every article in Java to, for the seven dimensions. Uh, like for some reason, master students just want to do that. And I mean, every time you find out the majority, if not all of the studies don't meet those seven dimensions. But one thing that I find interesting is no one's really done a review of the research in, in Java um, for things like this as well. Uh, and I think Justin taught me this, that one of the, the most important words in Beowulf and Risley is some. Um, those weren't the end-all, be-all uh, dimensions. And I think Fawcett outlines some other applied dimensions that we typically don't either contact or, or discuss. So I find mm -hmm. it interesting that, um, well, and I appreciate that your dissertation really jumped into some of that review because I think it's lacking within our field. Sure. and and. What the, what the point of the, the research project was to do was to look at our, our research ethics 
in the field as evidenced by the permanent product of the, of the articles that are published. And so we asked questions about um, basic human rights. And one of the main things that happens when you um, come on board to do applied research and behavior analysis is you take the online NIH certification so that you can um, be part of the research engagement. And one of the critical um, um, documents to help people understand how to conduct research in the biomedical and behavioral sciences is the Belmont Report. So the Belmont Report talks about respect and justice and um, respect for persons, justice and beneficence. And so at the bare minimum, the Belmont Report outlines criteria for ethical engagement in, in our science, um, in, in all of biomedical and behavioral sciences. So one of the questions, or part of the question in the research project was, are, are we reporting these minimal requirements in Java? Um, and spoiler alert, the data is not great. <laughs> um, the, minim the, the reporting is minimal. Um, the, the basic protections, like did this, did this uh, participant consent to research? Um, what are, the, what are the demographic nature of these participants? Um, who, who decided that this research project, or was the outcome of this research project an improvement in the quality of life? So we use all of these buzzwords, and I think that's what you're talking about, Justin. It's like, we're using all these buzzwords, um, and we're I guess these master students are obsessed with these dimensions. Um, but my question really was, at, what point, if any, is this reflected in our permanent product? Because that is what we demonstrate that we value, in essence, in, in the field. Was it ever? Um, which one? Uh, was any of it ever demonstrated, the, the long-term outcomes for them, the demographics, talking about them, if consent or assent was obtained? Was that ever, was that ever a part of JABA? Or is it just something we've always talked about but never implemented? Yes, um, so the answer is yes. But what's interesting is that when Java was first published, um, the, the, well, let's say I did 68, 78, 88, 98, 2008, 2018, the first part of the data analysis looked much better with regard to reports on life improvement. Um, the best year is 1978. Um, in that sample. And what you're getting in, in those types of, of articles are that um, the person engaged the researcher and um, demonstrated that they needed um, help solving a problem. <clears throat> they talk about the consent process and then they outline the outcomes of the research project and then they demonstrate how the person's life was improved. Um, so so we're talking about, um, it's almost as if we're telling the entire story. And in the later decades, we're getting bits and pieces of, of how this engagement even started and if the person benefited after the researcher's departure. That's really interesting. <clears throat> and because I feel like lots of the times when I contact our literature, my go-to is like the 60s, 70s, maybe early 80s. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, man, we did some really cool shit. Uh, and then, and, and this isn't a dig to anybody who's doing research currently, but like I read some of the current stuff. I'm like, 
like we what happened what happened so uh i wonder like what's going on that we valued that so much back then that it kind of fell off and i'm wondering if some of the more recent events that are occurring in, in the society in our field will now bring us back to some of that stuff that we we valued in terms of at least research i mean i know with our behavior analytic friend group we talk about this all the time. <laughs> like, I don't even know how we don't get tired of talking to each other about the same thing. <laughs> but it's our thing. Like, we keep going on and on about it. And one of the things that, that's important for scientists to understand is that they are in, um, they are also members of society and, and responsive to the contingencies of society just as, if this is not a separate activity that makes sense this is not like oh i'm just um i'm doing whatever i like over here there's societal influence all the time in the context in which uh applied behavior analysis or the context in which java was first published was in the context the social political context of the civil rights movement in 1968 in lawrence kansas so this is this is the the spirit of the applied science is what is what we're talking about is if the spirit of the applied science is ensuring um, that researchers are obligated to be responsive to not only the participant that they're working with but also society then we we know and it's been said several times um, that the the research procedures aren't decided by um, the researchers' goals or, or interests at the time. The research procedures should be what society says the problems are that needs to be studied. Um, and I, one of my working theories is that there's a drift away from what society has said, these are our pressing, pressing issues and a more drift towards, um, I don't know, specialty areas of, I don't, I don't know how to, how to talk about it, but, um, well, I, I don't know if this applies. I think the drift goes back in the, the time frame you're talking about, 68 to 78. I think it was a time of social significance, uh, right? And, and really understanding of what we were doing and trying to help real world problems. So you take real world situations and they would go in and put some methodology in there and, and publish a study. And you can look at the work of, uh, you know, Mont Wolf and and and, uh, and others were really doing that, uh, and then I think somehow from I would say the mid eighty uh, early eighties to now, I think it's just about publishing smaller scale methodological sound studies just to get them out there, and so I think that's part of the problem. Is my guess is that people are just publishing just to publish. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and we've seen some of that in our own work. I know Julia's here as one of the attendees and uh, did a, a review of social validity measures in Java. Um, an update, there's been, you know, several that have occurred. Uh, and I, I think she's read almost every article in Java as a result. And it doesn't look good. Uh, either we're just not report, either we're taking it, we're not reporting it, which I doubt for some reason, given what Justin said about some of the, you know, what we're doing with methodological rigor and some of the, the studies that we're doing. And so it would make sense that if we're no longer assessing what is important to society, that that's not reflected within in our research. Uh, and so I'm wondering if, if I, I guess I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that discussions like this and some of that data uh, that 
that's come, starting to come out and like your work, Malika, will start to shift us back into um, like to take both words, like finding our heart again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those social validity articles, Wolf 1978, um, it's either Bayer and Schwartz or Schwartz and Bayer. I always get them mixed up. 1991. Yeah. People, people really need to reread those articles several times to understand really what social validity is. And I think that one of the problems in, in a field that is growing and emerging and so exciting like ours is that these buzzwords get thrown around, but they don't get put into action in the form of the research that we do. And people keep saying, well, this is socially valid and this is socially valid because I gave them a questionnaire about if they liked what we did at the end of it. It's like, well, um, I'm pretty sure that, that, that that's, that's the exact opposite of what, they, what the social validity uh, research says is the way to approach this. Um, but when things move so fast, checklists become very convenient. Um, and, and also it's a skill to, to engage in a collaborative relationship with, a, um, with anybody that we're working with, especially in practice or in the research context. A collaborative relationship is is something I think that um, could be very foreign. Well, and I think we've been talking specific to research, but it's not just specific to research. You know, we should be doing the same thing within our clinical practice as well. Uh, so I think you know, with what Fawcett was talking about, specific to research and and our relationship as the researchers with the participants and I, I love the point that he makes about they're not subjects and this is why that's a bad term um, they should be participants and this is why we're using that term but it's it goes back to and and works within our clinical practice as well uh, so I think avoiding uh, the coloniality and, and, and that type of a relationship with your research participants is just as important as with your clients in, in a clinic or in a school or wherever you might be working. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's also, it's also, um, there's, especially when, when we get to a point where we talk about, there's a lot of talk about diversity in our field. What does the diversity look like? What's the diversity of the, um, of the behavior analyst? What's the diversity of the, um, the participants in our research? And the, the big elephant in the room is that there's a huge human rights concern. And there's a, there's a long history of um, people that are from marginalized uh, places in society being used as research subjects and experimented on. Um, and, and again, the history books is where we go back to. We're talking about um, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. We're talking about um, Jewish concentration camp prisoners being victims of, of research. <clears throat> and so it's very, very important for behavior analysts that are engaging in, in research um, activities um, and in practice, of course, but engaging in research activities in particular to know that generations of these people know that they've been used, their, their families have taught them, you have been used as a research subject, and the, or not you in particular, but um, our, our, um, our, our family, persons in our family, or, or persons in our community, or persons that um, belong to our religious um, affiliations and groups, 
have historically been used for the biomedical and behavioral sciences. And that generates a, a distrust that gets passed on throughout generations. And so we really have to kind of take a step back and, and respect that that is the history and respect that we are still conducting research and respect that um, if, if, our, if our field is not as diverse as, as we would like, there's a solid reason for it. We're all behavior analysts. And so we know that there's some stimuli in the environment or, or there's an, a, a lack of reinforcers that is, is creating an, an environment where um, more persons that are from different, um, different social and, and um, or different, just different than, than the white you know, male norm. There's, there's gotta be a reason for it. Um, and I think that's what we're wrestling with as a field. That's my guess. I, I think that's, that's very well put. I, I, I had a, a conversation with some students in a class about the systems that might be in place that are continuing to drive things that, uh, or the systems that might be in place within our field that are preventing or not accelerating diversity uh, to the point that we should be seeing it or wanting to see it. Uh, and one of them brought up like, yeah, the system is broken. But then that led into an interesting conversation that, well, the system is broken for some, but the system is actually working for people who look like me, right? So uh, it's not that the system's broken, it's, it's for, for you know, the people that it's actually benefiting if they're seeing a benefit from it. Um, but it's, it's definitely broken for the people who are continually marginalized or the people that are continually, you know, like you said, forced into research or used as research subjects against their, their will or their, their knowledge. Uh, and I think you make a great point that we as a field are almost some of the people that are best suited to be able to analyze some of those systems uh, that are in place that are preventing us from having a more diverse uh, group of people in leadership roles at, or at, at roles at every level within our field. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think the, one of the root causes of this lack of diversity in our field in particular from my vantage point, which is a vantage point of the margins. Um, so from a vantage point of the margins, one of the, the biggest issues is that there are structures of power within our field. They exist. There are ways in which we determine um, or, or the way that we treat different people in the field. Now, what, what leads to that and what drives that could be different at any point in time, but essentially what, what we have is we have, there's, a, um, there's an article that is called uh, The Weirdest People on Earth. I'll look it up, I'm sorry but the acronym is weird. And so there basically, it was a commentary about the uh, behavioral sciences and saying that um, the behavioral sciences was oriented towards Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic communities. And so the acronym they used was weird. And so essentially every, everything in the behavioral sciences is weird oriented. And if it's not weird oriented, then it's considered a, a, um, a departure from the norm. So now we're saying that weird is the norm and anything else is a departure. And that gets reflected in, in um, the research that, that gets decided on as far as topics are concerned. Um, and, and maybe how people are treated when, they're, when they enter into our field. So that, 
is something that a lot of scholars are starting to gain momentum and talk about because it is so present. And um, the good thing about the world shifting right now is people are kind of okay talking now, <laughs> which I find nice, but. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's definitely one thing that I feel like I've seen a noticeable change, at least personally, with, with some of the people that are in my community, in my circle. Uh, they're more open, or at least they're initiating conversations about some of these things uh, in, in ways that I never thought that would have occurred. Um, mm -hmm. And that definitely didn't happen up until some of the, the more recent events in, in our society. Uh, but before I get too far away from that, there's a question that's related to um, some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah. Uh, it is recently, there was a review of the reported demographic information in Java articles, uh, and they found that race and ethnicity, SES, and other information on participants to be very underreported for participants. Do you have a theory for why these variables are underreported? Are they important variables to report in research studies? And what do you think the solution is for researchers to begin to report on these variables. It's a lot there to unpack. Yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was I was with the question. That's a really good question, by the way. I was with the question, so just take me one, two, and three, and I'll. Yeah, so let's maybe let's take it by by chunks. So yeah. uh, there was a recent review of Java. They found that uh, variables such as race race, ethnicity, SES, and other information on participants was very underreported for participants. Uh, so the first part of the question is, do we have a theory for why those variables might be underreported? I, I, wish, I, I wish I had a theory. As, as flippant as this may sound, and I, and I don't mean it to sound flippant, but as flippant as it may sound, um, one, of the, one of the worries I have is that the, the researchers don't see the value in collecting complex demographic information. They don't see the value in, in considering a person's race. Um, they don't see a value in considering a person's ethnicity, the, their first language that they speak at home, their religious preferences, their gender, their sexuality. They don't see the value in, in how all of, those, all of those factors, and even sometimes where we uh, Kimberly Crenshaw calls intersectionality, this combination of those factors pushes people towards the margins of society. And so, so if you don't know the demographic information of your participants, or you don't know to, to figure out the demographic information of your participants, then you don't report it. And you just assume that your weird way of structuring, you know, your research experiment should apply to everybody across the world. And you guys work internationally. I know you know that the same type of approach for one family um, is not going to work for another. And maybe you guys have some stories about that. That I mean, it's just so. So that's that's that. I don't think that there's enough education about these these persons who have historically been marginalized and how they've been used in the past as research subjects. Yeah, um, I, I agree with you on that. That. I that it goes to the researcher or researchers not reporting it. But I also think there's a larger problem within the journal. I'm not just sure if it's Java specific. Uh, there's not data on other journals like BAP or behavioral interventions or something like that. So I don't want to just pick on Java just to pick on Java, but based on the data on Java is I think one in terms of what the editors or action editors or the journal are looking for, they don't allow space 
in the in the manuscript to put that kind of important information they rather space put on trivial things i think things that don't need a lot of space like ioa collection and exactly laying out how you did ioa and, and the steps by steps for ioa and so like i know from personal experiences now we don't probably we're guilty of this too we probably don't put race or ses in there for for our kids uh that we do as participants so we're, we're just as guilty from on on that standpoint but i know when we write articles we put a lot of information about the kid which is i think double the size that we usually see in java in terms of participants and we've been asked to cut that down to put more information on uh, experimental design and how functional control is established with a multiple baseline i know as uh, on the editorial board of java and doing numerous reviews for them you know it's one of my things is uh is that i always say in the when the participants are not described well that's one of my comments and very rarely is that picked up as an important comment from the action editor of this is something that has to be changed. And if it is, it's not like a mandatory change. It's like you should consider it changed. So I think that you have a problem with the researchers in general. And then I think you have a, a big problem with uh, what is occurring in terms of the journal and the leaderships of the editors and action editors. And I, I want to be clear, not just job. I think this is a universal issue is my guess if you look at other behavior analytic journals. Yeah, I, well, and I, I think that's a, a great point and has been some of our experience in cutting out some of the, the demographic information. And I think, Malika, you said values. And what I think is, well, there's no contingencies in place for the researchers. So if I'm not seeing behavior, there's no contingency for that behavior to occur or to maintain that behavior. And I think Justin's point illustrated that very nicely. There's no contingencies for researchers to include that information. If action editors were to require it or ask it, it would be there. Like if that was a, a requirement for publication, it would be there. But unfortunately, we have these weird requirements. It's like, well, how did you how did you determine what was it an agreement or a disagreement and dedicate so much journal space to that? And we're missing out some of these other variables that are that we should be valuing and that should be important. It's almost a punishment contingency, right? Like if they're telling you to get rid of it and that's a huge critique and that's stop, stopping you from getting published or quickly getting published, you're going to stop doing it in the future. Well, and it, it, then it becomes a perpetual problem, too, yeah. because like we find ourselves in, in situations where we can educate other behavior analysts. And then when they're writing something up, it's like, well, don't include that because they're just going to like, don't waste your time on that or don't do that because you're just going to get rejected or they're going to ask you to remove it. And then that person trains someone else and that person trains another person. So we have this perpetual problem to where these things that are very important aren't getting put in. So I think there's agreement between the three of us, right? Like this is an important issue. So I'm wondering what you guys think we can do to solve this issue. Right. And that's the biggest, I was just about to say that Justin is like, I, I think there's, I think there's multiple contingencies operating simultaneously that are leading to this same problem. And one of the things that we need to, to talk about is we need to talk about functional systemic changes and, yeah. and, um, Unfortunately, if, if there's not a rule in place with regard to publication, we're probably not gonna see that information trickle in. Like you said, Justin, it becomes a, 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 a suggestion. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
um, in a, hey, this would be nice and easily to easily dismissed because the goal is publication. The goal is publication, the public, the goal is grants, the goal is tenure. So we have reinforcers for the for the researcher which are very, very specific. And then we have a completely different set of reinforcers for the person that in, agrees to engage in the research engagement. So now you have another system that we're, that have two different levels of reinforcers. And so that's where the, of course, we're gonna have to define values and we know, we know all that, but if we can't all agree on, the, on a common reinforcer, then we're not going to get very far and we're going to continue ending up with this lack of information. Um, that was a, that was a long-winded answer, but I completely agree with all of you guys to the first part. Yeah, I don't think that was long-winded. And in the course of this conversation, I think we addressed the other two parts of this by do we think they're important to report, and then what's the solution <laughs> on reporting these? Uh, yeah. So I, I think, uh, and if. For, and if whoever asked that question, it was done anonymously. If you don't feel like we touched on everything, please throw some more up or ask us to provide some more clarification and we'll do our best. But, but Malika, oh, go ahead. I just wanna say, I think commentaries or reviews like this that shed light on the issue are important. And I think, you know, I, editors see this and editors wanna make the change. And I, I have to believe Linda LeBlanc wants to make those changes. I think the changes take time just based on the structure of journals. But I think it's important to keep highlighting this and highlighting in conferences and citing these kind of papers because the more sites it gets, the more it gets mentioned, the more that likely we're gonna get changed. So I think th these kind of papers are, are much needed to, to make that change go forward. Yeah, if you, if you have no idea, it's not even if it's important because the, the person who asked the question said, do you think this is important? This is not, this is not important, this, this is essential <laughs> information. It's essential because the whole, um, the, uh, the Belmont report, the principle of, of justice is that we don't over select specific persons to engage in research. And by specific persons, I mean persons of a specific religious background, like we were talking about before, a specific race, a specific ethnicity. We have to be sure that we're not over-selecting these people um, or people that have these, um, that belong to these communities and, and um, causing them to be part of our, our research agenda and overburdening certain people and then ignoring other people. And then the, 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 the contrary to that is then we don't have a diverse understanding of, of human behavior across all these cultural contexts. We have a limited understanding and then we try to apply it to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, so it is it important, yes, but it's also, it, it's non-negotiable. We're not supposed to be engaging in, in any sort of research endeavor that doesn't meet at least the minimum criteria of the Belmont Report. Yeah, I, I would say necessary. It's it's necessary. And we need to figure out how we can, you know, get the contingencies in place that will make it to where it is necessary. And we're starting to see it happen more often. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wonder if, if one potential, uh, like I think Justin's suggestion with commentaries and things like this happening, I, I do think this is part of the solution, but it, you know, there's, it's, it's a complex problem and is likely to have a complex solution. 
Uh, and I wonder, it, I was just thinking about how social validity is typically collected, given the participants that are typically used, um, or the people who are typically asked about, you know, the importance of maybe the DV. And then uh, maybe it'd be beneficial for researchers to start asking people outside of just the, the you know, the stakeholders in the study um, that might be from a, a different culture or a different population or a different SES or a different gender um, to also answer those questions uh, because they might view it completely differently than the people who were involved in the study. And that might help us move forward in terms of um, addressing some of these problems that have come up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and I think this rolls right into uh, I, I, we, we've touched on diversity, we've touched on coloniality. One thing we haven't touched on is social justice in ABA. Uh, and I wanna make sure that we get to touch on everything. I, this could be, I think we talked, this could be like a six hour fire yeah. <laughs> talk. This is one of the ones where you end up at your hotel room at, at four o'clock in the morning after shutting down the bar, right? Yeah. And then you show up the next day for the very same thing. And I get another thing. <laughs> yeah, but, but I think it, let, let's maybe chat about how um, social justice and ABA are related. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, so social justice is, is concerned with creating a fair and equal society for, for all members of society. So we could talk about um, social justice in terms of, of economics or social justice in, in terms of um, like real estate and, and, and social um, uh, orienting of, of cities and things like that. So we get lots of lots of different domains. In the context of science and in applied behavior analysis in, in particular, one of the, maybe I have a rant, maybe I, maybe I have a rant and I didn't realize, <laughs> one of my rants, Why are you? and Shal and, I, <laughs> Shal and I agree on this, and so we go back and forth, but it's nice to talk to other people about it, is that social justice in, in the way that we understand uh, the dimension of applied is, is the, I said it earlier, the applied spirit of the science is social justice oriented. The applied spirit of the science is that, um, the person's life is, is um, going to improve because we are addressing whatever uh, systems of contingencies that are operating in society that are causing suffering for this person. And so applied often, we, we keep hearing um, social significance, social significance. And so, so that's kind of my, my rant and Shal and I's rant when we talk about this is that people keep treating social justice um, as if it's this like auxiliary area of the science, you know what I mean? Like, like, um, like functional analyses or, or, or like autism intervention, like they're, they keep treating it like it's this specialty area, but, but the way that we um, understand our position in this, in applied behavior analysis is that that's, it should be, it is, it's driven by, by a social justice orientation. So that's, that's our. That's your your rant. Sticking to it. Your, uh, I mean, welcome to rants. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, and I think maybe the word inherent, like the mm -hmm. it, ABA, is in, inherently driven by social justice. You know, mm -hmm. uh, like so they they're they're synonymous almost. Uh, if I'm if I'm capturing what you're saying correctly. It's it's difficult to articulate right now. Um, and that's one thing about social justice that 
we're constantly talking about is that um, it is very difficult. This is a very difficult area of research and it's very difficult to, um, to look at and to analyze and to understand. And then the more we know, the more we kind of <laughs> reorient ourselves. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so, so it's difficult to, to articulate for me right now, but I'll, I'll get better at it. Well, and I think a lot of this stuff is difficult for all of us to articulate because I think, unfortunately, our field is way behind lots of other fields in some of these different areas. Uh, so we're having to use terminology and information from those other fields. Mm -hmm. uh, and anytime that happens to a behavior analyst, it's like, Ugh. like <laughs> I can't use that fluffy language. I've got to get kicked out of my Java club, you know? <laughs> Uh, so I think some people are just cautious to or, or actively avoid it because we don't have like a behavioralized term for it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of holding us back just a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and you don't see that in some of the earlier work that you were referencing before. Uh, it was, this is the important thing and we're going to, it's complex and it's difficult, but we're going to jump on it and we're going to try to do our best to solve it. And then, hey, in, in the discussion section, let's maybe try to talk about from behavior analytic perspective what this looks like. Uh, but it didn't prevent us from doing the work. Yeah. And well, one of the, one of the interesting trends that, that um, I noticed in, in my analysis was in 1968, almost every article in the sample told us what the race was of the of the participants and it literally disappeared race literally disappeared over time and the trend is just dismal um, and so the most demographic information we're going to get is um, a person's age and a person's sex not gender but a person's age and sex is what we're getting um, that's just not enough information for as complex as the human condition is, as, as different as we all are, um, as, as, as individualized as, as we are as people, um, and as important as the context of the communities that we identify with, um, that's just, it's just insufficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I wonder, and this kind of goes, circles back to some of the solutions we were talking about, uh, for everyone that's here, that's listening, if you're going to do research, flood that participant section with all of the information that you can, all of the important, all of the relevant information, and fight um, with the reviewers and the editors with the importance of that. And I think we might get some headway there because like Justin said, I, I'm sure um, Linda LeBlanc is more than open to these types of changes and encouraging this and getting it in, in the, the journal. And it's probably not just specific to Java. It's probably, you know, we can see it across a lot of different behavior analytic journals or even journals outside of our field. So if, if we start to dedicate more time to that and we start pushing for it and, and pushing and providing rationales for its importance, then maybe we'll get some headway there. Yeah, and one of the things this is, this is one of the things that's personally difficult for me as a person um, is because I am a person with very, very complex uh, um, racial and ethnic understanding um, of who I am. And it is not something that's very easy. And so this journey has been very personal for me and has been something that I've been doing a lot. I'm really, really interested in this area. Um, and, and so, uh, to be a person that's in the margins, a person that doesn't get um, the, the privileges of, 
of white persons in our field, it's been very difficult for me to constantly be in the margins saying, hey, there's a problem here. Do you want to talk about it? And they say, yeah, you can definitely talk, but it's going to be like the last talk at ABBA. Everybody's pretty much leaving, this, that, and the other. And then all of a sudden be catapulted to this, this area of, of of interest, like, oh, oh, now let's, let's listen to Malika, let's listen to Shaolin, let's see what they have to say. And so, so it, that's a little bit offsetting again, from a personal perspective is like, well, well, now you care, like, <laughs> but we're going to take the, the, the opportunities where they come, like, this is a portal, we'll jump through it, we'll be in warp speed somewhere else. And if we're going to do systems change, we have to take, I have to take my personal, like, annoyance about people listening, um, present company excluded, you guys have listened to me all these years, um, and, and kind of push that aside. But it is, I'd be remiss if I wasn't honest with, with my fellow colleagues about that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it makes me think about some of the conversations. And if you don't feel comfortable talking about this, let me know. Um, yeah. But uh, some of the more recent pushes uh, in like social media and other places uh, for um, becoming allies or for uh, giving people that have been marginalized and pushed to the edges uh, a bigger voice. Mm -hmm. And I just, uh, there's, so there's lots of different things and there's lots of different movements and there's lots of different things happening. And I, I wanted to see if you had any input or any uh, reflections on on some of the stuff that you've witnessed. Mm -hmm. It's a very it's a very white way of of thinking or a white way uh, of um, conceptualizing the world to say what can I do to help these um, black indigenous persons of uh, indigenous persons persons of colors you know it, it you know it's a very white way to say like what can I do to amplify your voice. It, and so it's it's off-putting to me personally because um, I have a voice. It's very good. <laughs> I have um, I, I'm now pretty educated. I like to think, and I um, I, I value myself and I value the the community that I'm part of. And so I don't really need a white person to help me along the way. And so there's there's this term that's um, and it's a very paternalistic way of looking at it. And I think that gets infused in our research. I think it's a very, I'm here, I'm the authority, I'm going to help you, you know, poor person that, that doesn't know any better, which is literally what we talked about when we got started. That's what colonialism was. You arrive on the boat, you run, you run in there, you say, oh, these, these poor people just don't understand what I'm saying and they don't have the, the religion was definitely infused in, in every act of colonialism. Um, they need our religion, they need our practices, they need our, our this, we'll take the cool things that we like um, and then we'll commodify that and, and uh, exchange that for money. And then we'll just continue doing this over and over again. It's the same line of thinking, you know what I'm saying? And so um, when we're talking about allyship and empowerment, what we're really still talking about is this genuine collaboration with people and not feeling like you have to, what can I do to help you? That's, that's, a, a, that's completely not the approach that, that myself or my family um, especially when we have these conversations around our dinner table, feel like we need. So, and that's, there's a, it's a very, very finite distinction. It's difficult to see it sometimes, but it comes across in your verbal behavior. So if it feels like you're trying to save this person, that's probably where you kind of double back and say, okay, hold on a second. 
I mean, I, I'm glad that we're recording this because I think that was just beautiful, um, beautifully stated. And I, I hope that everyone is taking away the same things that I'm able to take away in all of my conversations that I have with you, Malika. So I appreciate you sharing sharing that. And uh, I want to, if you're comfortable with it, there's some more, there's a couple questions. Yeah, uh, and I pushed, I pushed a wrong button. I should not be pushing buttons, but I tried to send the article. <laughs> um, so I hope that worked. You did, you yeah. did, it worked. You got it, you nailed it. I'm not gonna push anything else. Um, so <laughs> one question that came up is, do you think the reason for the decrease in reporting of race um, was the common practice of people espousing that they don't see color? Yeah. That, sure. I mean, at this point, at this point, we have, I could, I could come up with a lot of theories, but that, that colorblindness rhetoric is real. Um, we're seeing it a lot more often, of course, in the, in the current state of our world right now. We're seeing this, I don't see color rhetoric. Um, and to, to not see color doesn't mean that the person's not still in the margins, not still in uh, a victim of, of um, aggressions in lots of different forms, um, a, a victim of exclusion. So you don't see color because that's your privilege. You don't have to, you know? Uh -huh. um, and some things have been, a lot of things have been going on social media. But one of the things that I thought was poignant was um, talking about privilege more often and then um, saying it's a, one of the privileges as far as raising children are concerned is that you have the privilege to decide to talk to your child about race as a white person. Um, I don't have that privilege. It's, an, it's a conversation that started too, too early in my opinion, for as far as the eyes of a child are concerned, but I don't have the privilege. I'm raising four black boys. That's the conversation we have. Do you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. um, being colorblind is, is I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do some homework. I'm interested to know the origin of that that rhetoric. Yeah. Well, I, I saw something similar on, on, on social media and it, it resonated with me, um, like as a, as a white male, I have the privilege to learn about racism mm -hmm. uh, without having to experience it firsthand. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's, um, I, I sit with that every day, knowing that the, just, just because of the, the way I was born, uh, I don't have to experience those things that so many people have to experience every day and consider before they even walk out of the house um, mm -hmm. or use that as a consideration if they are going to walk out of the house and if they're going to make it back safely. Uh, and I think along with the colorblindness, I think Kristen Miller and, and Shala, I think was on that paper, talked about um, culture blindness as well. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, and I think those Maybe um, culture blindness is a newer term that's come around more it's, recently, it's but I wonder. Older. It's a little older, yeah. So, um, yeah, stay tuned for a conversation about that in your, in your next local journal. Maybe Ooh. you'll see something soon. <laughs> I like it. I like the, I like the teaser. <laughs> uh, there was one other thing that came up in the chat box um, that said, uh, is, and I didn't get to it right when we were having it, uh, talking about whatever we were talking about at that moment, but is this another hashtag me too movement? What happened to that momentum? And I think that might've been in response to um, some of this, like you saying, well, it's nice that people are having these conversations now, but why, why weren't we back then? Or why hasn't this been an ongoing conversation? 
you know, one of the, um, I don't know, sorry. I'm, I'm just gonna be <laughs> a bunch of I don't knows and theoreticallys and um, it's complicated. But um, one, of the, one of the things scholars have talked about over time is the difference between a movement and a revolution. Mm -hmm. And um, it's very important to, our verbal behavior is very important about certain things. Um, a movement implies that um, it's a shift and um, it may trickle, but it still doesn't confirm with the, the, the norm, whatever, you know, the Western norm. Um, but a revolution is a complete change in the shift of the, of the systemic structures. Um, and, and revolutions are, are, are brought about by people who have been oppressed historically. Um, and so, so I guess, I guess the biggest thing is I, I throw the question back at everybody um, to say like, what are movements, what are revolutions and, and where, do we, where do we ignite the biggest, most impactful change? And that's at the systems level. And we have a science that can work at the systems level. We have plenty of, of behavior analysts that that's, that's, they've given us a lot of guidance as far as behavior systems are concerned. So mm -hmm. that's where we need to start looking towards. I absolutely agree. And I, I thank you so much for this. I feel like this hour just flew by <laughs> um, and I wish that we could continue on. And I know that you and I uh, will continue these conversations and, and hopefully we can bring it to the public uh, some more uh, in either this or in other avenues. But I, I can't thank you enough for being here and having these conversations with us and allowing other people to be part of it as well. I think this is what needs to continue to happen for us to address a lot of the things that, that you, you have data on, um, yeah. you have hardcore data on now. So, uh, so I, again, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for coming. It's, it's a sad because this is what we usually talk about at the bar yep at least, at least a couple months ago when we, i would have seen you in may and uh -huh. so i'm glad we got this opportunity today me too thank so you guys thank you for coming remember no one can leave till i give that code word at the end if you want your senior so you're kind of now on my terms uh everyone thank you guys for coming this is our sixth one we will be doing one uh in two weeks we will announce who that person is we kind of like having these uh special uh, guests come and join us. It makes it more fun for us and educational for us as well. So we will get that out, information out uh, very shortly uh, to you. And because as you guys know, you guys are the, anyone who comes is the first one who gets an email notifying them of the next one. So you guys get that, uh, can sign up quickly before we sell out for the seventh straight episode, which I'm sure we'll do next time as well. Uh, with that, I want to also thank everyone who's donated uh, to Rants with Justin and Joe. This is a pay-for-value thing, so it can be free for everyone, but donations are very much appreciated. They let us uh, do things like our RBT training that has now reached over 75,000 people have signed up for it. Our free eight-hour supervision training, which we're working on. Other CU events that we're working on, research and helping kids. So for those of you who donated, we're very appreciative of that. And for those of you who haven't, if you could, we would be appreciative, but no pressure if you don't. And with that, uh, the opening word you already have, the closing word will be brownie. B-R-O-W-N-I-E. Joe, and like I can tell it's on my mind. Yeah. I want some sweets today.
<laughs> you deserve some. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, guys. No, thank, thank you, you. everybody. Uh, thank you so much, and we'll see you guys next time at Rants with Justin and Joe.